I don't know about you, before I get started, I want to say um, I've heard some hints as to some of the numbers they're going to be playing. I'm sure you will all want to come to the sock hop and hear the famous group, No, Not Yet. And uh, when, they, when you get there, surely you will ask them, so do you have a name for your group now? At which point they will say, we do now. Well, what's the name? We do now. Yeah, Mary Pat's over there saying, don't, don't do humor, John, it's not good. This always falls in his face when he does humor. So Eric, where's Eric? Did he leave? You, you, you know, the last time when I got up to preach this passage, I unceremoniously interrupted you, so I feel like I ought to at least give you the opportunity. Wouldn't you like to preach the next passage in Colossians this morning? Come ahead, right now. You're not ready to do it? You have to hand me a Rubik's Cube for me to Okay, okay. <laughs> I know some of you may be thinking, look, it's been a long time, I can't remember Hebrews, and you've still got these last few verses to do, and you can't even think of more creative title than that one word title, benediction. So why bother with it? Why not skip over it? Numbers of you, once you found out that I'm going to do Genesis 1 to 11 next, thought, let's, let's do that, let's start that right now. Let me tell you something, the opening... And the closing verses, especially of New Testament letters, are often passed over as fairly unremarkable boilerplate by all kinds of commentators and all kinds of preachers. Um, There are those who hardly give any attention to the opening and closing words in letters, but that's not us. Why? Because we know that all of God's Word is profitable and none of it should be passed over, 2 Timothy 3.16. The benediction here in this passage contains important truths that I think will reward careful reflection. So let's go to prayer and then we'll dive into it, beginning at verse 20 of Hebrews 13. Father, I pray that you would bring back to memory so much of what you have for us and have taught us throughout the letter to the Hebrews as we come now finally to this one last closing message. Help me to, in a sense, sum up this letter as we reflect here once again in this benediction passage. Apply it to our hearts and lives that we may be your better servants in all things, I pray, in Christ. Amen. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Compared to so many other New Testament letters, Hebrews actually seems rather long, not brief. But it was just a brief letter. The whole book is less than 10,000 words, shorter than Romans, shorter than 1 Corinthians. It can be read in less than an hour. But it's actually amazingly short in comparison to the eternal and infinite truths that it shares. Paul does not say this, verse 22, look again. He doesn't say this with a scolding finger or with a stern scowl. He addresses his readers warmly as brothers. This letter, if you recall, has plenty of rebukes, plenty of stern warnings. Some of them, some of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture some that have troubled believers for centuries. And yet, he urges us gently, I think, to take in what he has written, to take in all of that which he has written. So don't just close the book. Don't just check it off, as it were, as I'm now finished reading. Plant the truths of Hebrews deep in your hearts. Read, reread, think, rethink, and plant the truths. To bear with its exhortations, verse 22. That means to endure them, to put up with the exhortations. Paul knows that what he has written is no easy read. It's confrontive. It's challenging. He knows that at many points it's uncomfortable. Nevertheless, he urges us to hear it, to heed it, to apply it in our lives. Then in verse 23, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. If Paul is the author of Hebrews, as I think, it's not as popular position today as it was in the early church. When I started my ministry in the early church, we all thought that the author of Hebrews was Paul. Applying this point, though, to be more relevant to you, We should take notice, should we not, of believers outside of our fellowship. Just as Paul does with Timothy. We should keep up with the ministry of, say, our missionaries. Our missions committee does an excellent job of keeping us informed concerning our missionaries, for whom we should pray, for whom we should think, for whom we should be there in any number of ways. We should certainly be familiar with their circumstances, with their situations, which you can be for all of them if you pay attention to what our missions committee seeks to share with us. 
So there's that application. Verse 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Let's just pause right there. That word saints, that means all the believers. There have been those who have said that saints is a kind of special category, just a few, just the greatest of believers. It's rather awkward here in verse 24. Greet all your leaders. Surely they would be among the upper class if you're going to think of it that way, which is illegitimate. But then he says, and all the saints. Not just the leaders, but all the saints. That's not the special few who have attained sainthood. That's every believer is a saint, a holy one, because of who you are in Christ. Those from Italy, he goes on, greet you. Grace be with you all. In other words, in all things... Let us live in grace. Let us extend grace. Let us believe by grace. Let us love through grace. For apart from God's grace, we are rudderless, aimless, joyless, hopeless. Eric, I guess there really wasn't that much to the letter. I'm all done. Sure you don't want to go on with Colossians this morning? No. What I want to do now is focus on verses 20 and 21, the benediction tying in truths from those other verses that I said something about already. A benediction is a good word. A prayer to God on behalf of readers, on behalf of believers, on behalf of those who receive the letter, on behalf of us who would eventually receive the letter. A good word, a prayer to God on our behalf by the author, I think Paul in this case, who would naturally want you to think about Timothy. It's especially appropriate here, this benediction, a good word, a prayer to God on behalf of his readers, that's especially appropriate since Paul, if you look back just a little bit, has just asked that his readers pray for him, verses 18 and 19. This benediction, unlike some others in Scripture, although there are others that are fairly detailed, this is a rather long and involved benediction as scriptural benedictions go, and yet its purpose is very simple and very direct. The letter of Hebrews is as a whole a word of exhortation, verse 22, wherein Paul urges his readers to stand firm in the faith and live in a way that is pleasing to God. We should all always stand firm in our faith in Christ and live in a way that is pleasing to Him. Respond in our lives to what we know of Him and what we have believed by living in a way that is pleasing to Him. Paul hopes for how his readers will respond, for how they will live in their difficult circumstances. But ultimately, it really isn't to them that Paul is appealing here. He is appealing to God himself, verses 15 and 20. While we have the responsibility 
while we have the moral agency given to us by God, we lack the power to carry out what God commands. So, Paul exhorts us frequently, but ultimately, he appeals to God for the good things that we need in order to be able to do God's will. Because God, Paul knows that unless God gives us the wherewithal to do His will, we simply cannot. This is the message of the Bible today, just as it was the message for those who lived in the first century. What is it that is going to enable men and women of faith to lead lives that are in fact different than the world? What enables us to lead lives pleasing to God and to live lives consistent with God's holy will? Or we might say it this way. What is going to enable you to stop living for yourself? It's very much addressed to me as well. What is going to enable you to stop living for yourself and start, rather, and, and stop using other people What's going to enable you to love other people as God commands rather than using other people? What's going to enable you to serve other people in true goodwill and following through from not just having good intentions, lots of people have good intentions, but what's going to enable you to actually do good things or good works toward others? What is going to enable you to factor God into the equation and really, I mean really lead or live a devout life in the truest sense? Can any of these things happen by mere human effort? The Bible's answer throughout, not just implied here, the Bible's answer throughout is a resounding no. None of this can be done merely by human effort. Why? We are corrupted by sin. Even we who are saved are still given to sin so very often. We choose to. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one, none who does good. There is not even one. Romans 3, verses 10, 11, 12. The fact of that passage and the rest of Scripture on the subject can be proved without a Bible. You don't even need the Bible to declare this obvious fact to verify it or to prove it. We have spent centuries 
When I say we, I mean collectively the world, human beings. We have spent centuries trying to civilize man and the world. Especially in the last couple hundred years, I know you weren't around for all of that, but humanity in general in the last couple hundred years has seriously, at a whole variety of of points and ways, proposed that they have found the way to arrive at heaven on earth. We can perfect things. This is accessible. It is, has been claimed, especially in the last few hundred years at various points. It's accessible through education, through science, through social reform, through political action. We have had enlightenment, democracy, Communism, fascism, socialism, secular humanism, all of which have claimed to be the avenue to nirvana in this life. And yet, look at the ongoing and increasing chaos in our world. Consider the confusion and the torment, not just in some very prominent tyrannies, nations that are utterly tyrannical in many places on our globe, but right here in the very center and heart of our civilization in America and in other nations that are at least somewhat like us. Even in the best, if we might think of it that way, it's not really accurate, but even in the best of nations, the gods of humanism boldly stride, offering the claim that we can arrive at the ideal existence and yet you look at what's going on in our schools I wanted to say you look at what's going on in our shopping malls I think now you have to look at what's going on in Amazon you look at television you look at cell phones and you see what is coming out what are people looking up You see what people are drawn to watch on YouTube or elsewhere. And you look closer at our families and you think and you realize that apart from the grace of God where this letter ends, apart from the grace of God, you see nothing but the futility of striving for real change by the power of man. You see nothing but striving and not arriving at real blessing and real peace and real joy and real fruit that is good and in fact pleasing not just to you, not just to others you might seek to bless, but is in fact pleasing to God. 
apart from God's direct intervention, these things, all of them, remain beyond our grasp. They remain beyond our grasp in any true and lasting sense, apart from God's direct intervention, apart from God's power in and through our lives. It is not by us in our humanness. And then you look at yourself. You look in your own heart. The Bible proclaims that apart from the grace of God, apart from God's Holy Spirit entering into a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, entering into one who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, the heart is only a self-serving, self-deceiving, and ultimately self-destroying monster. Salvation and blessing are not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4, verse 6. There is no other way. There is no self-salvation. There is no utopia attainable outside of Christ and that one doesn't come ultimately until the next life, not this one. There is no self-progress, self-salvation, which, by the way, is the way of all other religions and philosophies outside of Christ. Christ who alone is the way, the truth, and the life to the God of peace. Man, you see, if assessed honestly, few assess honestly. Man, if assessed assessed honestly, is gripped by his own chaos and evil. God alone has within himself true peace to give. And God seeks peace with us, offering his peace to a world that remains willfully at war with him. The message of Christianity is not that we must do God's will and then we will be at peace with God. We can never do His will if we have not first received His peace. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates His own love 
toward us in that while we were yet saints, no, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8. You do not have to earn or negotiate peace with God, neither of which any of us are capable of. You only have to receive peace with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And out of God's peace comes every good thing for doing God's will, even the peaceable fruit of godliness and the joy that that fruit brings. I want to suggest to you that perhaps, perhaps the book of Hebrews is the most Christ-centered of all the New Testament epistles. And accordingly, we find Christ at the heart and center of the closing benediction to this book, highlighting verses 20 and 21 of chapter 13. What it seeks, what it points to, what it speaks of is trans formed lives. What it is after, what God is after through all of this, through the writing of Paul, I think in this case, what it is after is transformed lives that will stand firm in the faith. The source of this transformation is God. It's God's peace. The means through which this transformation is received is the ministry of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It is through Christ that every spiritual blessing comes. Not merely salvation itself, but every spiritual blessing that we enjoy comes through Christ. It is not self-developed. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, verse 20. It is only by following Christ by being part of the flock of which he is the shepherd, the flock that he shepherds, it is only in that path that anyone attains the blessings of salvation. Initial in all that follows. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. John 8, 31, 32. It is the call of Christ as it is made effectual by the Holy Spirit that leads us out of our sin. In the same way, if you will, that God led Jesus out of the grave after his resurrection. We have riches, we who have believed, we have riches in Christ. We are new creations. Christ lives in us and we follow Christ who is our great shepherd, we follow Christ as he works in us with spiritual power from on high. Praise the Lord. 
All of this comes, verse 20, look at your text. All of this comes as the result of a covenant between the Father and the Son through the blood of the eternal covenant that God brought up from the dead. Our Lord Jesus. You look at that in verse 20. This is a remarkable and instructive statement. A covenant, as you know, is a binding agreement and it provides terms according to which two parties, at least, come together in one form or another of a relationship. In the ancient world, a conquering lord would impose terms covenantal terms on his new vassals who by accepting the terms entered into a covenant relationship likewise today business partners might enter into a covenant with certain specified obligations perhaps somewhat unique to their form of business the covenant relationship with which we are most familiar today is marriage a relationship that comes into being through the solemn swearing of formal vows. The parties in this covenant, verse 20, that's where I am, are quite evidently God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is called an eternal covenant, which means its effects reach forward everlastingly never end Christ was raised from the dead once for all into an eternal life from which he is able then to give to his own Hebrews 7 verse 25 says he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus lives and reigns forever, he is able to offer a secure and an eternal salvation. Through faith, we are made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8, verse 17. And this inheritance is thus an eternal inheritance. Paul writes to Titus. I, I, I'm, I'm tying in so many other passages in Paul just to show you that Paul, the author of Hebrews, is saying the same thing there. Paul writes to Titus that God has poured out his spirit on us so that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life Titus 3 and verse 7 it is through Christ therefore that God makes covenant with us 
saying as he did, God did, in Ezekiel 37, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. The new covenant in Jesus' blood, as outlined in Hebrews 8, is eternal in its benefits. Namely, forgiveness of sin, sanctification by the Holy Spirit, and fellowship with God. All of which lasts forever. At the same time, the covenant is eternal in the other direction. Reaching forever into the past. The Bible gives ample testimony of a covenant between God the Father and God the Son which was established in their own eternal pre-creation council. Peter speaks of Christ as the Lamb unblemished and spotless foreknown before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1 verses 19 and 20. Revelation 13, 8 calls him the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Who was slain from the foundation of the world. Wrap your mind around that. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption. God the Father laid upon the Son, His Son, a charge, a duty. It's what I want you to do. A charge that the Son voluntarily accepted, joyfully accepted, willfully accepted. And so Jesus prayed shortly before his arrest in the garden, Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. John 17, verse 4. The biblical data shows that Christ accepted the following conditions. One, that he should take up human flesh being born of a woman and under the law two that he should fulfill the whole law of God on behalf of his elect people achieving for them a full righteousness where Adam failed and three that he should receive in their place the punishment that his people had deserved because of their sins shedding his own blood for them on the cross. In return, God the Father promised him the salvation of all the elect as his brothers adopted into him and sisters as well did God promise to him dominion over all things through his resurrection from the grave Hebrews 13:20 is very direct in focusing on Christ's work on the cross according to that eternal covenant with the father 
It was through Christ's blood that he fulfilled his part of the covenant, having first appeared as a spotless lamb, perfect and without any blemish, without any fault, and therefore able to offer himself for others. The book of Hebrews is soaked in the blood of Christ. A great portion of its teaching has to do with the unique and saving efficacy of the blood of the Son of God. The saving, effective blood of the Son of God. And how far that blood surpasses and fulfills the meaning of the blood of bulls and goats daily offered by God's people, the Jews, for so many centuries. Thus Paul says, this, he says in effect, this is how Christ saves us. Not, does he save us, by setting for us a moral example. He is the best, the perfect moral example. He does not save us by setting that example for us. Other religious leaders have said, follow me, I will show you the way, and they've set a kind of moral example. All of them, failures. All of them, violating their own standards. He does not save us simply by enlightening our minds. He does that. But that is not how he saves us. He doesn't save us by helping us to see everything the way he sees it, by giving us his philosophy, if you will, of all things. He does not save us by seizing power to implement an allegedly better political objective. Hebrews 13 and verse 12 puts it directly. Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He doesn't do it the world's way. The atonement, his atoning death, his self-sacrificial death, is a repulsive subject to many. The shedding of his blood is a repulsive subject to many. They flinch at the notion that God the Father would require blood shedding to achieve salvation's goals. There is hardly a more arresting sight than that of human blood being spilled. We have seen many arresting sights in the last few years tragically arresting sights 
terrible, awful, arresting sights. We haven't even seen them all directly, but we know of them. There is hardly a more arresting sight than to see human blood shed, literally. People see blood and they faint. Someone stumbles upon suddenly a crime scene, perhaps a tragic traffic accident, and they stop dead in their tracks to realize that they are looking maybe just at the stain of human blood on the ground. Blood is the very presence of death and suffering and lament. And yet, it is the shedding of his own son's precious blood that God makes therein his most important and essential and final statements to the world. Statements that we must hear and that we must receive if we are to come to God for our salvation. The first statement that the blood of Christ makes is God's holy judgment on our sin. It is only, really, when we see the blood of the Son of God spilled on the earth. I don't mean you had to see it literally, but you know this is what happened. It's only when we see that that we comprehend anything of the sinfulness of our sin. That's what it cost. It is only really when we see the blood of the Son of God that we understand. As the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said, when we see that blood, from hence we see what is the evil of sin, how great it is that has made such a breach between God and my soul that only such a way and such a means Christ shed blood must take away my sin I must either have lain under the burden of my sin eternally or Jesus Christ who is God and man must suffer so much for it Second, the blood of Christ also shows the great magnitude, the unfathomable magnitude of God's love for us. Why should He? It is in dimensions appropriate to a cross that Paul speaks of God's love in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 18 praising its width and its length 
and its height and its depth. So J.I. Packer has said, the measure of love is how much it gives and the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son to be made man and to die for sins and so to become the one mediator who can bring us to God no wonder Paul speaks of God's love as great and surpassing knowledge Ephesians 2 4 Ephesians 3 19 The New Testament writers, not just Paul and Hebrews, the New Testament writers constantly point to the cross of Christ as the crowning proof of the reality of the boundlessness of God's love. We talk about God's love, we think about God's love, we appreciate God's love, we take that love casually. casually. The boundlessness of God's love for us. Third, the blood of Christ proclaims God's full involvement in the world at every level. Now many people refuse to believe in the God of the Bible who is identified as perfectly holy perfectly good and absolutely sovereign. How can we believe that such a God exists even, given all of the sorrow, all of the suffering, all of the evil in our world? If there is a God, so many people think, if there is a God, why doesn't he do something? He did. People blame God and point their fingers at God, but in his courts of justice, the situation is quite reversed. We are the ones who are under accusation. And yet, it is not to us. We are the ones under accusation. But it is not to us that God himself points in his wrath as it goes forth. He aims that at his beloved son. Ultimately, in the most significant way. I don't mean to say he's not wrathful about sin and sinners, but he aims it at his son, his own son. in a manner more arresting than anything we could conceive, God has done the most astonishing thing. You see, we want, don't we? We want a divine wand to wave and take away all our troubles. Like that. God's holiness, of course, makes such an imagined farce unthinkable. He doesn't just wave a wand and remove all the evil and we're done with it and that's it. Never sidestepping, 
but always demanding a full accounting of our sin. Why? Because he is perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly good, perfectly holy. He demands an accounting of all our sin. So God himself came into the world to personally deal with sin and death. For you and I both know that when he sent his son, one of the persons of the one God, he's coming himself. God the Son came and He experienced all that we experience, all the difficulties, all the humiliations of life in a fallen world. All the temptations of the flesh. He even experienced death itself. God enters into the very depths of this evil realm. There is no corner that he has not engaged. He tastes the bitterest dregs of all that is wrong and all that is twisted in the creation that he made, remember, perfectly good, which we have ruined. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 puts it this way. He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted in light of the cross of Christ the accusation that God is, and you hear this accusation all the time if you talk to any number of non-believers especially. The, the accusation that God is, he's far off if he's real. He's aloof. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't, he doesn't care about anything in this world. This is in fact, this charge, this claim is in fact the greatest of all blasphemies. It is the cross that God therein displays his involvement in this world in a way that is not only far greater than we could demand, it is far more gracious than we could imagine. God made a covenant far off into eternity, far before time, far before creation, that His will would be done. But He also entered into this world in the person of His Son, spilling His own blood and taking death onto Himself, that He might seek and save those who are lost. The great benediction, therefore, here in Rome, uh, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, becomes a great doxology, a song of praise that makes a fitting climax to everything that we have learned in this letter. Speaking of Jesus, Paul concludes... To whom be the glory forever. 
and ever. Amen. Strikingly similar to his doxology in Romans 11 and verse 36, speaking of God, Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. How fitting it is that such a great theme of Hebrews, that being its great theme, the deity and surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, the one who brings us to God, how fitting that that same formula should be applied to God's Son. Verse 20 speaks of His blood as the source of our salvation. It is from Jesus Christ that we gain all things with God. Verse 21 asks for Christians to be empowered to serve and to please God through Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd and leader of salvation. Then the last words to the benediction also tell us that, and this is also to Jesus Christ who as God incarnate is the recipient of all our worship and praise. The opening verse of Hebrews made the point that God's final and ultimate revelation to man is through His Son, who in His resurrection has received supremacy over all things, since the Son is the revelation of the Father far from stealing praise from God, when we worship Jesus, we are in fact worshiping God in the way that God wants, in the way that God has prescribed that we worship Him. Jeremiah Burroughs, one more time. Jesus Christ is the altar upon whom all of our spiritual sacrifices are to be offered. And then John Owen, the Father communicates all his love to us through Christ, and we pour out our love to the Father only through Christ. Christ is the priest into whose hand we put all the offerings that we wish to give to the Father. God the Father's first and chief love is His Son, both as the delight of God's own soul and also the mediator who brings us to God. And therefore, as God's chief delight, it is to this Son that worship should be given. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, verse 6. All our salvation and all our worship and thus all of our service, all of our living are from Him and through Him and to Him all to the glory of God the Father. If that is true, and it is, then the one thing, the one thing that is absolutely essential is to hold fast to Jesus by faith. The first century Christians were seeing their world change right before their eyes, very much like we are seeing 
our world change right before ours today here in America. Their security back then in the first century, their peace, their prosperity in the world was falling away in the face of sin and death. Meanwhile, they were commanded to live the kinds of lives that they could hardly imagine living. Doing everything they were commanded according to God's will and pleasing God in all things. No wonder Paul concludes in verse 25, our text, grace be with you all. They were going to need God's favor or God's grace, God's help in every way. And so do we. This is the one great and stable power to which we Christians can hold firm and secure and anchor within the veil, recall that, the grace of Almighty God, and it is from Christ's blood that grace is made available to all of us. It is through His present ministry that we find grace for the trials of the day. It is to Him who is enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high that we offer all the fruits of this grace. It is from Him and through Him and to Him that we have life and that we can live life abundantly for His glory. And that is all done by His grace. By His grace. For His glory. Is there a better phrase for us to unite around? Let's pray. You are the all in all. To you, from you, for you, through you, all you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for including us and enabling us To please you only by you, through you, in you, are we able. And yet you, you take such joy in our doing so. It is beyond us why you should, but you do. Such is the marvel of your love and your grace, which we praise in this benediction as we close this magnificent book that you inspired and gave. In Christ, we offer you praise for all of this. Amen. If you will stand one more time after a Hebrews message. Well, I'm assuming it's one more time after he, but at least from me, I assume.
May you not only see and understand these things, but may you be blessed as you live them in the power of Christ. Depart in his peace. Amen.